from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello, Earthlings, and welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Friday, the 12th of August, 2016. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is a brand new kid to show biz with knowledge i persevere but find out do me a favor favor let me in here then we can find the rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light I have a new book out. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so I wrote this thing called Mind Wipe, and it's a book about dealing with uh, stress and anger and ego. Uh, it's a short introduction to mindfulness and how that can help us uh, stay healthy. Mindfulness is a very basic concept. It's just the process of being here now, appreciating what's in front of us, breathing in and breathing out, and you know, trying to let go of everything, right? In that moment, you're just letting go of the tension, the fear, the thoughts you have, whatever. Just let it all go. Focus on your breath. Breathe in. Count one. Breathe out. Breathe in. Count two. When you get to ten, start over at one. Do it for two minutes. Do it for half an hour. There's lots of, you know, ritualistic ways that some people will tell you you got to do it right. I think do whatever works for you. And anyway, so the book's about all that stuff. Um, if you go to my website, justtext.org, uh, there's a links there to resources and websites, and there's a couple of pieces in the book that I wrote on Medium and Veteran Gamers UK, and you can check out stuff. The book is $5.50 on Amazon because that's as cheap as I can make it. You can buy it through IndieBound at your local bookstore, and you should to support local bookstores. Uh, there's a Kindle version available for $1. It's not formatted perfectly, but you know it's a dollar. What do you want? You can add it on Goodreads, so check it out. Um, if you know me in person, you can get the book for $2.50 because that's how much it cost me to buy it, so I'll sell it to you at cost. But uh, otherwise, you can buy it from your local neighborhood bookstore for $5.50. And uh, yeah, thanks to everybody who's already bought it and given feedback. And uh, yeah, I appreciate everybody supporting. And, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to profit from this. The reason I wrote it is because I just want to have something I can hand to students and say, here, read this book if you're having trouble with anxiety or attention or whatever. Maybe these mindfulness techniques will be useful. And uh, yeah, you know, look, I, and, and a lot of people hear me and they go, oh, dude, really, Eric, you're going to teach me about dealing with stress and anger? You're the most stressed out, angry person I know. You know what? Look, I, I'm an angry person, but that's why I wrote a piece called How to Be Angry for a Long Time. And I deal with a lot of stress, but the point is that I deal with it. And these are the ways I deal with it. And maybe the way I deal with it can help you deal with it. Um, so whatever, you know, take it for whatever it's worth and check it out. Uh, like I said, I'm trying to make it as cheap as possible. I'm just trying to make the thoughts and, and techniques that have helped me help other people. If it helps people, great. If not, okay, whatever. Do what works for you. 
Um, yeah, hopefully you listened to the interview with Sarah Schulman, which just came out less than a week ago. And don't think this is going to be some pattern, people, where I'm like putting out a new podcast every week because I'm not. Uh, I set up a Podbean account and there's a new feed for this, of course. And hopefully, I mean, if you're listening to this, my guess is you've already subscribed. If not, go ahead and subscribe, baby. Uh, yeah, it's on iTunes and probably on Stitcher. I don't know how it works on other platforms. But anyway, if you go to my Podbean, if you go to my website, fbesp.org, there's a link on the right-hand side of my blog. Uh, it's all about my, you know, the feed and, and whatever. You can get to my Podbean and all the rest of it. So, yeah, um, right. The feed is back online. And now that I'm paying for a feed, first of all, it's a lot easier because I used to have to do the feed myself and go through and edit the code. And now it's a lot easier. I just upload it to Podbean and it uploads very quickly. And so I just upload it there and then it just publishes it automatically. And it's very nice. Um, but the other thing is, uh, I, I, I feel like, well, I'm paying for it. I've got to do it more often, which is the same logic people use when they join a health club or a gym. A gym? What's a gym? But, uh, Simpsons. Blammo. That's a 30 Rock reference with the blammo. Anyway, uh, you see, if I were caring, I would put in the actual sound clips from the Simpsons and 30 Rock, but I don't care, so I'm not going to. <laughs> The point is, people say, oh, I'll sign up to a health club or a gym, a guy, what's a guy? And uh, they say, well, because I'm paying for it, that's more likely to make me go there and exercise. And I mean, whatever, if that works for you, great. I think a lot of people say that, and then they don't do it, and then they're paying, and they feel guilty, and they're not exercising. I can feel guilty and not exercise without having to actually pay. But, you know, hopefully if I do this feed that I'm paying for with Podbean, um, then maybe I'll be more likely to do shows more often. Who knows? But I'd like to give a special thanks to Phil Olson, who gave me the suggestion of going with Libsyn, and I didn't because Podbean is cheaper to get unlimited uh, upload uh, storage, and Libsyn cuts you off at like 250 megabytes a month or something, and I probably wouldn't hit that ceiling, but then again, it was more for that, so I figure I'll go with the unlimited thing, and you know, Podbean is more bare bones, because you get what you pay for, probably, but I don't really need a lot of full-featured stuff in my pod hosting stuff and things, so yes, whatever, uh, new book, new feed, it's a day of new beginnings, uh, new, ca- new camera, same cat, new stamina, uh, that's an ill doctrine reference. I'm just going to throw out references all episode, people, so hang on. And if you listen to the Sarah Schulman episode and you're hoping to get more, you know, incisive, helpful, accurate commentary on the world today, eh, I'm sorry to disappoint you. A lot of this is me rambling, although we will be talking about new stuff, so just don't worry. I mean, I'm not going to apologize for being who I am. I'm looking at my shelf right now. I got this hard drive that I, it's a, why? it's a, not Wi-Fi, USB, uh, what was the other one? There was a format before USB became the standard. There was a, another format. The I can't remember what it what it was, but anyway, um, it's that format for uh, a hard drive. So nobody's gonna want it now, and I, I've been meaning to give it to someone who can use it. But anyway, getting back on track, we need to talk about Donald Trump. This man is a psychopath, and somehow he is the Republican candidate for president. He is the second most respected politician in the country right now, apparently. He has so many supporters and so many followers, and it's really depressing because every politician who runs for office always says the same thing. Oh, I believe the American people, you know, they know what's best for themselves, and they're, they're smart, and blah, 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 blah. And I believe that humans are basically intelligent creatures who can figure out the truth from you know, opinion and can understand the way the world works if they work at it. But when I look at these Trump supporters, I'm just like, man, there's something really wrong with them. Like they're not just, 
you know, they're really excited about their candidate, <laughs> which is one thing you can say for them, but it's really disturbing. You know what I mean? And, and, and here's, okay. So I'm just going to, I, everybody listening to this probably knows why Trump's an idiot, but here are two things that really upset me about Donald Trump. So the first comes to us from MSNBC. There's a guy named Joe Scarborough, who was a Republican. I think he was a Senator or house of representatives. Anyway, he's been involved with the Republican party and now he has a show on MSNBC morning, Joe. And at one point, he was describing a meeting that Donald Trump took uh, where he was talking about national security matters with someone. And so here's some audio, Joe Scarborough, talking about what Trump said during that meeting. Several months ago, uh, a foreign policy expert on the international level went to advise Donald Trump. And three times he asked about the use of nuclear weapons. Mm. Three times he asked, at one point, if we have them, why can't we use them? That's oh, wow. one of the reasons why he has, he just doesn't have foreign policy experts around. Trump, Trump asked three times. Three times in an hour briefing, why can't we use nuclear weapons? And anybody who knows Donald Trump knows that that's not unusual for him. That's the way he is. He, he, you know, he definitely takes this maxim from primer to heart. If you have it, you have to use it. And and he's always been about using every... I mean, you know, dude, look, the man made his money, first of all, by getting a huge loan from his father. Uh, and so he was born with a, you know, borrowed silver spoon in his mouth. And he made his fortune exploiting low-paid low workers, uh, including illegal immigrants from Poland, and defrauding people and, and, you know, putting his name in gold letters on everything he makes. Now he's talking about he's going to be a champion for working people. It's absolutely unbelievable. So the fact that he's taken seriously is just startling, you know. And people make all sorts of excuses about, well, he says how he feels and he's a straight shooter. First of all, no, he's not. He says what he thinks people want to hear. When he went to... I don't remember the name of the place, some religious college. And, and, and he was talking about, well, no, the Bible is the number, my second favorite book in the world. The first is his own book, Art of the Deal. And he's like, oh, I love Corinthians 2. And it's Second Corinthians is how it's usually described. And, he, you know, he couldn't name a Bible verse if you asked him. And, I mean, the whole thing is just a fraudulent attempt to schmooze people. That's what he does. And he talks about, oh, we're going to get better deals. So he's against the TPP. Okay, but what is he for, right? Like, he keeps talking about, like, oh, Detroit workers and blah, blah, blah. He gave some speech in Detroit about, well, you know, we're going to make America grow again and blah, blah, blah. And he makes all these promises, and he has no specifics about how he's going to do it. Except, like a year earlier, he was in Detroit. Democracy Now! covered this. Dem de um, uh, I'm going to make a note. Democracy Now! in Detroit. And... Uh, he, so he was in Detroit a year earlier, and he told this group of businessmen, look, the way to fix Detroit is, and to get people working again, is to, you know, you, could, you don't have to go overseas to move your factories for where you can find lower paid workers. Go to the southern United States, you'll find them there. And then after, you know, your factory operates there for a while, you come back to Detroit, those same workers who right now are demanding union jobs at good wages, they'll be willing to work for a lot less because they don't have any jobs at all. So that gives you an idea of what Donald Trump says when it's just him and the business leaders. Well, why do we suddenly believe that he's the friend of the working man now? And then the other part of Donald Trump's appeal is that he is a racist scumbag, right? He talks about, and you don't need me to tell you about what he said about Mexicans and Muslims and, you know, everybody. And when, you know, black people were protesting his rallies, he was like, knock the crap out of them. And then a guy did. And Donald Trump's like, I'll pay the legal fees. Don't worry about it. And um, 
the New York Times did a really powerful video where they compiled, you know, protesters, supporters of Donald Trump uh, yelling things. This is pretty disturbing. So if you got kids around, maybe don't let them listen in. This is you know, just audio from Trump rallies. Thank you. Do you know the safest place in the world to be is at a Trump rally? This guy has a t-shirt that says, F*** Islam. F*** Islam. F*** him. God bless Donald Trump. Thank you for not taking the shirt off. I did. F*** hey, baby. Muslim is not a religion partner. It's an ideology. You don't come and talk about America when you're supporting Muslims. Our president has divided this country so So, you know, I mean, look, I don't believe Donald Trump's a Nazi. I really don't. I think he's saying what people want to hear. Now, he has had uh, a hate on for Obama for years. He was one of the most public figures in his birther movement talking about, I don't believe Obama was born in the United States. I mean, you can't be more insulting to the president than to say, like, I don't believe you were born in this country with no evidence. He kept talking about, like, my people in Hawaii are going to bring back some amazing evidence. And they never produced anything. And Obama did give up his long-form birth certificate, and that still wasn't enough for him. So, I mean, he's he's a jerk and a scumbag. But, I, I you know, and, and here's the thing. Is he, you know... It's, to me, the question isn't, is Trump a fascist? The question is, is he igniting fascist impulses in Americans? And the answer is yes. You, these rallies are, are fight clubs. They are places where people are losing their integrity. They're losing their identity. They're losing their commonality as Americans. And they're getting swept up in this hive mind mob mentality, which says, we are right. He is right. And I'm going to swear my loyalty to him. And I don't care what anybody says. I don't care if anybody gets hurt. And that's not healthy. That's really, that's a sick mindset. And that's the part that really makes me nervous and it's nothing new. I mean, this isn't anything shocking. I, I, we've seen this before, but it's never been this big. It's never been this widespread nationally, and it's never been this unified. And white supremacist leaders over and over keep saying, like, we'll have a great time if Trump is in office. And when he was, you know, Trump was asked if he would, you know, denounce the endorsement of David Duke and the KKK, he gave some stupid answer about, well, I don't know what group you're talking about and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, he, this is what's known as dog whistle politics, where you can say one thing, and he, he recently said, oh, uh, the Second Amendment, you know, when Hillary wants to take your guns away, when she gets into office, there's nothing you can do. Well, maybe Second Amendment people, maybe there is something you can do. And, you know, it's clear that he was saying something, you know, trying to encourage them, well, maybe you can shoot her. But then, you know, his, his subordinates all talk about, well, he's talking about their voting power. But it's, it's ridiculous. If, he, if it's not clear what he means, he shouldn't get to even run for office because you should be making a platform clear. You should be making your positions on issues clear. And if they're not clear ever, then that should disqualify you from being a viable candidate. People ought to, you know, voters ought to be saying, look, I don't, and they all talk about, I don't trust Hillary. 
So if your thing is trust, how can you trust somebody who doesn't talk about, and don't get me wrong, look, I'm not going to say Hillary's a great candidate, but if your issue really is trust, and it's not, I I hate her because she's a woman, which is probably what exists in a lot of Trump voters' mindsets, or I hate her because she's a liberal, just say that. If you think that, then say it. But if your whole thing is trust, how can you have any trust at all for a man who says one thing and then when people call him on it, he starts saying, well, that's not what I meant. You know, know, it's ridiculous. It's the whole thing's ridiculous. So hopefully everybody listening to my voice knows that Trump is a psychotic nutbag and he shouldn't be, you know, elected to dog catcher. And someone once made the joke. I wish I could remember who. Like, when did dog catcher become the the least respectable position in the world? We need someone to go out and catch dangerous dogs, right? And you don't get elected dog catcher. That's the other thing. But anyway, um, okay. So let's talk about Bernie and Hillary then. I was a Bernie supporter from early on. I gave him money over and over again, and I, I love what the Bernie campaign did because we need to be clear: the Bernie campaign forced. Hillary Clinton to the left, and it forced the Democratic Party to the left, and it forced the platform of the DNC to be much more progressive. And now they're bragging about we have the most progressive platform in you know hundred years, whatever, whatever. And that's great, right? That's probably something Eugene V. Debs would have liked to see in his lifetime. I don't think his campaign ever had that same impact. D- d- it didn't get Bernie to be the candidate, and that's sad, right? And it was sad to see him acquiesce and and concede defeat and to endorse Hillary Clinton. That was sad. But here's, man, it was also sad to see his supporters booing him because it's like, look, I'm sorry, people. We knew this was coming. You had to know this was coming. What do Bernie Sanders has been a politician for like 30 years. What did you think he was going to do when he got to the Democratic convention? You think he was going to go in there and set the American flag on fire and be like, down with the state? No, he he knows that you fight and you fight and you fight. And then when you realize you're going to lose the fight, then you say, okay, what's how, what, how can I get the most out of this incident, right? How can I benefit the most here? And at a certain point in politics, I'm sorry to say it, in, in Washington politics, in national politics, in party politics, at a certain point, when you when you realize you're going to lose, then you say, okay, how do we come together? Where do we find some common ground now? And this is why Bernie's more awesome than Obama was. Because when Obama started a fight over health care, for instance, he started out with them, and Hari Kondabolu has a great routine about this on his first album, Waiting for 2042. He, you know, Obama started out saying, like, okay, we're not going to talk about single-payer health care. We're not going to talk about a public option. Those things are off the table at the start of the discussion. That's not how you negotiate, right? The reason the Tea Party and the Republicans have been winning a lot of these fights for the last 10 years is because they've started from a position of, we are not going to compromise on anything. We're not going to talk about anything. We don't have any common ground with you. And then people go, okay, well, what, what can we do to help, you know, find some common ground and and that gets them where they want to go that gets them closer where they want to go and democrats have been for the last 10 years for the last 20 30 years uh democrats have been saying well we're going to start from a position of we're all friends and we know that you're good people and blah 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 and therefore you know they get bought out and they get co-opted and they get uh, all their proposals are watered down obamacare is a good thing, but it's not nearly where we ought to be you know it's 2016 we should be joining the rest of the industrialized world with a single-payer healthcare system like Canada has and England has and Japan has and every other industrialized nation. And it's just sad. It's really sad that we haven't gotten to where the rest of the world is in terms of healthcare. Um, so anyway, uh, now look, 
in terms of so so Bernie was a better candidate than Hillary, no question. I'm not happy about Hillary. And look, I voted for Ralph Nader in 2000 in Florida. So you can't tell me a thing about spoilers and betrayal and you know, vote for this person to vote for the other person. It doesn't work like that, okay? The, there are very good reasons to vote for a third party, okay? The Green Party of the United States is a good political party. Jill Stein is a great candidate, okay? There's some things that maybe I don't agree with her on GMOs or whatever, but whatever, okay? But assuming Wisconsin is close, I'm still going to vote for Hillary Clinton. We... The, the question for me, there's really two questions. Number one, first of all, let's say this. Hillary Clinton sucks. I mean, she's not atrocious. She's not a psychopath. She's not a, you know, a fascist. She doesn't excite that same fascist mindset. She doesn't try, you know, she doesn't, you know. Uh, she's, a, she's a politician. Hillary Clinton is a career politician, just like her husband, right? And she is a neoliberal, warmonger, uh, you know, uh, right center candidate. Like, that's all she is. She's, you know, basically an empty suit. She does this bidding of the status quo, protecting the, you know, way things are for the wealthy elite. That's what Hillary Clinton is. That's what she's always been. And uh, so I'm not going to get excited about her. And she takes the votes of black people for granted. She takes the votes of the LGBTQ community for granted, even though maybe I shouldn't be using that term, given the discussion we have with Sarah Schulman, whatever. I'm still trying to find a new way to talk about that stuff. But, you know, she's not a great candidate. But she's not nearly as bad as Trump, right? Trump could ruin American democracy forever. He could destroy the, the, the foundations of our system for the next 100 years. That's what Scott Walker's done for the next 20 years at least. He's really ruined the state of Wisconsin in some major ways. I mean, not, you know, don't get me wrong. Wisconsin's still a great place to live if you're white. Wisconsin's really one of the worst places in the country to live if you're black. But, you know, we'll talk about that another time. Um, but, but Trump could do that to America if he's elected. So, so we should vote for Hillary Clinton. We need to transform the system completely, yes. And that's why people are like, oh, I'm going to vote for third-party candidate because we need to change the whole system. I'm not giving her my vote. And I understand that impulse. But here's the thing. We're not going to transform the American system of democracy in 2016. That's not going to happen, right? We've built some good momentum with Bernie, and we should continue that. But we, the main thing right now, I agree with Bernie when he says the main thing right now is stopping Trump from getting into office. And so, you know, I think that it makes sense for us to support Hillary Clinton right now. And then after November 8th, then we work on instant runoff voting and public financing of campaigns and ending Citizens United and creating a viable third party and the rest of it. And here's the thing. My question is, look, everybody who is a big Bernie supporter like me, the question is, are you going to now get to work on the relatively boring, relatively unsexy work that actually is required to make that kind of systemic change that's not as exciting as presidential politics, right? I don't think a lot of people are going to be involved in that whole, like, you know, organizing and making phone calls. And, and you know, if it's not tied to this big thing that's on the news every night, people don't tend to be as excited about it, right? I wrote that story in... Uh, in my first book, uh, Z, N, Z, you know, whatever you want to call it, and it's all about how frustrating it can be to be involved in these struggles and, and feel like you're getting nowhere. But that's what you have to do. That's, that's how change takes place, right? If Sarah Shulman taught us nothing else, it's that that change happens because you work on it and you work on it and you work on it and you personally probably aren't going to benefit much, but you know it's the right outcome. ta Coates said the same thing. The struggle is your you know, inheritance, it's your, I'm, I just read it. I don't see if I can find the quote. 
Yeah, the struggle is really all I have for you because it's the only portion of this world under your control, right? That, that's what the struggle is. The struggle is the right path to take. And, and, you know, hopefully it pays off, but you don't have any promises about that. And, but you, you work at it. And if you don't, then you're just a Johnny come lately. You're just a bandwagon individual who gets excited about something because it's everybody's talking about it. And then when nobody's talking about it, then you, you know, you go back to your, whatever life you had before. Um, that's not how change happens. Change happens because we work hard at it and we push and we shove and we have an impact eventually. I do believe we do. You know, I actually agree with Martin Luther King when he says the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Ta-Nehisi Coates gives a powerful, you know, antithesis to that in Between the World and Me, which I'm almost done with. Um, it's a powerful book and everybody should read it. Um, so I'm, I'm a little more hopeful than he is, but... But I understand, you know, his, you know, I'm not a black man in America. I haven't watched my best friend get shot down by the police for no reason by a psychopath who should have been off the streets long ago and America basically ignoring the problem and so on and so forth. We'll get to that. All right. uh, This week's action alert or this episode's action alert. I should not say this week because that implies we're going to do this every week and we're probably not. Anyway, Amnesty International has an urgent action this week about stand up for women and girls raped in conflict. And you should go to Amnesty International. You should sign that action alert and take a stand uh, to help girls and women who are the uh, people who often suffer the most in conflicts. And yeah, now let's turn to current events. That song, by the way, in case anybody is new to the podcast, uh, that song is from Consolidated. It's called Worthy Victim. It's a great song. And I did an interview with Adam Sherborne, who was the front man for Consolidated. And uh, so that interview is in our archive. And I need to update the archive. But if you go to my website, fbesp.org uh, slash synapse, uh, that's the part of my website that's devoted to the podcast or to the blog, which also has the podcast on it. If you do a search for Adam Sherborne there, you'll find it. Um, or just do a search for interview and you'll find all the people I've interviewed. Eh, only like three or four over the years. Anyway, current events. What current events? You've been talking about current events for the last 20 minutes. What are you talking about? Well, that was stuff that happened before this week. And now I'm going to talk about stuff that's happened in the past few weeks. So settle down, angry person who's listening. Um, this woman named Ilhan Omar. Oh, she's so cool. Uh, she was recently elected to the Minnesota House of Representatives. And she's the first Somali refugee to, to be so elected uh, to American uh, political office. And it's really exciting and cool. She seems like a really cool person. And thanks to Sophia for posting uh, the video from... Um, now this news. Anyway, uh, here's a little bit of her biography. Born in Somalia, Ilhan and her family fled the country's civil war when she was eight. The family spent four years in a refugee camp in Kenya before coming to the United States, eventually settling in the Cedar Riverside neighborhood of Minneapolis in 1997. Ilhan's interest in politics began at the age of 14 when she was an interpreter for her grandfather at local DFL caucuses. Watching neighbors come together to advocate for change at the grassroots level made Ilhan fall in love with the democratic process. And I'm like, yes! Yes! 
that's America right there, man. That's the immigrant story. That's what makes America great. So don't talk to me about making America great by keeping Muslims out of the country. You're an idiot if you believe that. We make America great by welcoming people into this country, getting them involved in the process, and finding common ground as all Americans and not getting tribalistically fixated on whatever. I'm, I'm getting fixated on Trump myself. Videos show Chicago police firing at fleeing car and handcuffing dying suspect. This is another incident where the police basically murdered an unarmed black man. Um, he was driving a car that appears to have been stolen, and they fired at the moving car, and then they chased him down and shot him. He had no weapon, and he died. Uh, totally messed up. This is from, I think, the Chicago Tribune. Uh, no, the L.A. Times, sorry. Videos from the fatal shooting of teenager Paul O'Neill by Chicago police show officers firing down a street as O'Neill sped away from them in a reportedly stolen car and moments later, officers handcuffing O'Neill as he lay mortally wounded behind a South Shore home. Uh, his sister, Brianna Adams, said it was disturbing, very disturbing when she watched the videos. I want everybody to know that Paul was loved by my mother, his family, and me. Adams spoke at the office of the O'Neill family attorney, Michael Oppenheimer. She said her brother had graduated from high school and wanted to go to a trade school and perhaps work for the local electric utility someday. The videos show officers firing on the reportedly stolen Jaguar as it drove away from them. Their shots appear to place officers who were farther down the street in the possible line of fire in danger of being shot themselves. The city's use of force policy explicitly bars police from firing at a moving vehicle if it represents the only threat against officers. And it did, and that's what happened here, and these people need to go to prison. Like, if, if, if you violate that policy... What are the consequences going to be? And it sucks because one of the guys in the video is talking about, man, I'm going to be on 30 days of desk duty now. You just killed a man for no reason. And and I shouldn't say no reason because in the police officer's perspective and a lot of white people's perspective, they look at something like this and they go, well, he was driving a stolen car. And what that says then is that you believe that a, a stolen Jaguar is worth more than the life of this black man. And if you believe that, you need to say that. You need to come out and say that that's how you feel, right? But that's a psychotic way to think about things, right? And at one point, it's crazy because in the video, the cops try to block him in, and they don't. They fail, and they, he gets through. Now, look, I can imagine, I can't imagine the adrenaline that must be pumping through your blood at that moment, right? And you're chasing this guy, and you're trying to stop a crime, and you don't know if he's got a weapon or not, and I understand the fear, but... That doesn't allow you to take out your gun and start firing at the car. And then when you start chasing him down, when he gets out of the car, you don't start firing at him. And when you're chasing him down, look, if you don't catch him, you don't catch him. Okay? I'm sorry. I'm a high school English teacher. I've had students be rude to me in the hall, and then they go running down the hall or, you know, walking quickly, and I've got a class i got to take care of. So I don't catch the kid, and he doesn't stop for me, and he's being horrible. That sucks. That moment is horrible. You feel powerless as an authority figure. I get that. But that wouldn't give me, if I had a taser, I couldn't pull out a taser and tase him. And I certainly, as a police officer, that doesn't give me the right to start shooting. I'm sorry. And that's the part, I, you know, it's funny because I don't actually hear people talk about this. I think one of the biggest things that happens in these moments is that the police officer is scared. Not only they're scared for their own life, you know, which suggests that they're just psychotically afraid of black men which is part of American culture and it's, you know, a sickness that's around in all of us. But it's also a fear of losing your control of the situation, right? And I want a cop to start talking about this, right? I posted a long time ago and I'll repost it. Um, 
the guy that Al Pacino played in that movie, I can't remember uh, what the name of it is, but he posted a thing, and it was the headline was, the cops are completely out of control. The guy who Al Pacino played in the movie, he wrote a piece about how the cops are completely out of control. And um, it, I keep wanting to say Sicario, and that's not it. But, uh, Serpico, that's it. The guy Serpico that Al Pacino played in the movie, which is a really good movie, you should check it out. He was a real guy, and he wrote a piece called The Cops Are Completely Out of Control and I Should Know. And he talks about how he's the only person I've ever heard talk about this. You know, this this attitude that, like, cops need to be invulnerable, they need to have every tool, and they need to be able to use them all, all the time. And they do, and then the courts always say, well, you know, this person was justified in what they did because he believed that he was in fear for his life. And that's not okay. We can't let that be the standard. Because then, you know, if I drive... Look, I've said this before. If I drive my car into an old woman thinking, well, I thought I would cure her arthritis by driving my car into her, that shouldn't be grounds for the court to be like, not guilty. He thought he was curing her of arthritis. That's just not okay. It should be a standard that's higher than that. So anyway, uh, this is another sick uh, incident of that. And there was a really interesting interview with, um, I think her name is Connie Rice, not Condi Rice, but Connie Rice. Um, and she was on Tavis Smiley recently. And um, she was, I think she was the one who said, she's done a lot of work on trying to raise consciousness among police and get them to interact with the black community and thereby fight the fear that leads to so much of this violence. And you know, according to her, she's had a lot of success in transforming the LAPD and, and their mindset and their consciousness there and whatever, whatever. I'm not going to comment on that. I would have to talk to people or hear from people in South Central LA, you know, people who live there on whether that's true or not. Anyway, the point is that she said, if you're waiting for the courts, if you're going to fight for the courts to convict these officers, forget it. You're wasting your time. And because um, she said, you know, courts just think that cops need to be protected from, you know, lawsuits and, and uh, charges that hinder their ability to do their job. So whatever, I, you know, it's an interesting perspective. I don't know how I feel about that. I think that American law, American justice system ought to punish everybody according to the same set of laws. But that's just me. And, and, and I think there is valuable pushing and shoving to be done there. But I don't want to waste my time. And, you know, it's an interesting thing to think that maybe it's a waste of time to try to push for things on that end. And as a teacher, I'm always interested in raising consciousness elsewhere. So I think that's an important thing to do. Anyway, um, yeah, so uh, along these same lines, the Movement for Black Lives just put out a really interesting platform, um, which I will link on my site, fbesp.org. It's mbl.org is the Movement for Black Lives, and their platform is really interesting. Uh, It's got a lot of different parts to it, and um, they've got in-depth information in each of the parts. Um, There's a, a section called End the War on Black People. There's a part about reparations. There's a part about invest, divest, uh, about supporting the community and not giving all the money to the police all the time. Um, economic justice, community control of police, and political power. And um, yeah, here's a paragraph from the introduction. Together, we demand an end to the wars against black people. We demand that the government repair the harms that have been done to black communities in the form of reparations and targeted long-term investments. We also demand a defunding of the systems and institutions that criminalize and cage us. This document articulates our vision of a fundamentally different world. And I love it because the vision that they articulate is beautiful and it makes sense to me and it's it's coherent. They've got a lot of research. They've got a lot of explanations for each section. It's all about like, here's why this is a problem and here's... 
what the solution does. And here's some examples of federal action that could be taken. Here's an example of state action, local action. Every section says, how does this solution address the specific needs of some of the most marginalized black people? They talk about LGBTQ survivors of violence, as Sarah Schulman mentioned. Um, so they, they really do a good job. They've got examples of model legislation. They've got resources, uh, research, organizations that are working on these policies. And it's just really cool. Uh, so I really encourage you to take a look, spend an hour, read through the platform. And um, yeah, the, the reparations one is something that a lot of white people get nervous about. Um, and some black people get nervous about too, you know, in the movie Barbershop. And okay, guilty. That's not a very good example of, you know, people, but whatever. Um, anyway, so one of the characters says, we don't need reparations. We need responsibility. And it's this guy, Ricky, and he's talking about, you know, we need to teach our kids better. And if you're living with your mama, you should pay her some rent and, and all this stuff. Um, anyway, so the point is that reparations, people get nervous about sometimes, but Ta-Nehisi Coates really came to public awareness first through a cover article he did for the Atlantic about the case for reparations. And that's a really good piece as well. You should read that if you haven't already read it. And it makes the case about why, you know, cause, cause reparations is something that goes beyond just, well, stuff was messed up in the past and, you know, maybe we could fix it by giving black people some money. Now that's not what reparations is. That's not this. That's the simplistic view of it. And the, the real point of reparations is you know, the wealth of this nation was built on the mangled, murdered, and mutilated bodies of black people. And those historic injustices combine with modern injustices that continue today. And those put together make it necessary for us, if we wish to heal the wounds of the past and the wounds of the present, we need to have structural adjustment to the wealth of America in order to, you know, balance the scale, so to speak both for the past and the present. So it's a really good piece that Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote. So check that out. Read the platform from the Movement for Black Lives. And uh, yeah, get on board. Let's advocate and push and make these things happen. In other news, uh, President Barack Obama wrote a piece for Glamour magazine. And I never thought I'd be quoting from Glamour magazine, but you know, whatever. Truth comes in all sorts of places and formats. So the piece is called, uh, Obama wrote this piece for Glamour Magazine. It's called, This is What a Feminist Looks Like. Uh, and he, it's a really good piece. It's a long piece, and you should check it out. Uh, here's an excerpt. We shouldn't downplay how far we've come in terms of, you know, fighting sexism. Uh, that would do a disservice to all those who spent their lives fighting for justice. At the same time, there's still a lot of work to, uh, we need to do to improve the prospects of women and girls here and around the world. And while I'll keep working on good policies, from equal pay for equal work to protecting reproductive rights, there are some changes that have nothing to do with passing new laws. In fact, the most important change may be the toughest of all, and that's changing ourselves. Skip. As far as we've come, all too often we are still boxed in by stereotypes about how men and women should behave. One of my heroines is Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm, who was the first African American to run for a major party's presidential nomination. Out of the article, there's a really good documentary about Shirley Chisholm's run for president. I think it's called Shirley Chisholm Unbought and Unbound or something like that. Uh, really good documentary film. Check it out. Back to the article. She once said, quote, the emotional, sexual, and psychological stereotyping of females begins when the doctor says it's a girl. Skip ahead. Michelle and I have raised our daughters to speak up when they see a double standard or feel unfairly judged based on their gender or race or when they notice that happening to someone else. It's important for them to see role models out in the world who climb to the highest levels of whatever field they choose. And yes, it's important that their dad's a feminist because now that's what they expect of all men. It is absolutely men's responsibility to fight sexism too. And as spouses and partners and boyfriends, we need to work hard and be deliberate about creating truly equal relationships. A 
amen, Barack Obama. All right, let's talk about economics. Respect, Ma. Oh, here go the check knocks. Chabam. Move from the gate now. Cash moves everything around me. Green, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, yo. Wait a minute here, Eric. I don't get this. I was, I'm going to follow you on your Facebook feed, and this whole podcast seems like you just took articles that you've been posting on Facebook, and now you're reading them out on the podcast. That's sloppy podcasting. Well, thank you, Bocephus. I, I don't know what to tell you. Um, that is basically what's happening here, but I have some other articles that I've been saving in the Google Doc, so just calm down. I will not calm down. You need to read my book. All right, I will. Anyway, um... So, yeah, economics, uh, high-frequency trading. For those of you who are new to the podcast, high-frequency trading is when computers trade stocks uh, thousands of times a second, for, and they only hold the stock for a fraction of a second in order to make a fraction of a penny. And they do this over and 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 this is great, except that they cause flash crashes, like in 2010, where the stock market loses 10,000 points out of nowhere, and then it rebounds just as quickly. And people go, well, why did that happen? And all the people who do the high-frequency trading says, we can't tell you because the algorithms that these computers use are proprietary software. We own these algorithms. And if we let you learn how we trade, we would lose our trade secrets. So we can't let you know how we trade. And therefore, you will never know what caused the 2010 flash crash. Michael uh, Lewis wrote a book called Flash Boys about this. But there's a book. I haven't read that yet. But there's a book. I can tell you that there's an even better book. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's better because I haven't read Michael Lewis's book. But anyway, there's a book called Dark Pools, which is really good. And it's by a guy named Patterson, I think. And uh, it's really interesting all about that stuff. Anyway, um, so there was news about high-frequency trading recently from Bloomberg. And uh, it says, Hi a regulator pledges to keep secrets for high-frequency traders. The U.S. regulator for derivatives said it will look after high frequency traders code once planned new rules oblige them to share their algorithms with the authorities. So there are new rules coming out that say you have to share your, you know, algorithms, but he says, "Don't worry, I'll keep it all secret." High speed firms Hudson River Trading LLC and CTC Trading Group LLC both filed public letters earlier this week criticizing the regulations because they give the government easier access to their code. The Commodity Futures Trading Commission, I should say, out of the article, uh, the CFTC was where Brooksley Bourne worked. She was totally awesome. You should look up Brooksley Bourne if you don't know who she is. Anyway, the CFTC wants the ability to examine algorithms to help it determine who to blame when markets crash. CFTC Chairman Timothy Massad said that the regulator wouldn't jeopardize the security of traders' proprietary source code. Massad also said he expects to finalize the rule by the end of this year. So stay tuned, people. I'll give you more news about that when it becomes available. Um, many of us have said for years that we need more oversight of this high-frequency trading. There are suggestions about how to slow it down, maybe, by having a tax on every trade, you know, like a fraction of a penny you have to pay for each trade, and that would cause them to trade less often. Um, whatever. We'll see. I mean, in a way, this might be inevitable because, you know, things just accelerate. There's a really good book by James Glick called Faster, the Acceleration of Nearly Everything. And that's the way the world works. We just, things get faster and faster. But we don't have to throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do because there are. And the mania against regulation in America and probably the rest of the world too, it's, you know, often called austerity or whatever. Um, you know, people say, well, government sucks and government shouldn't do anything and let the free market do its thing. Well, that's what leads to things like flat crashes in the 2008 you know mega crash um 
yeah, and that's not okay. And that comes from this attitude that says, well, markets will regulate themselves, which is what Alan Greenspan said, and he was wrong. That's why he said there was a flaw in my thinking and yada, yada, yada. Uh, Amazon's end goal for the Echo is letting you order anything on Amazon by voice. In a way, this is about killer robots, but it's just crazy. It's just psychotic to me. Uh, so Amazon has this thing called the Echo. They did ads with Alec Baldwin, unfortunately. Uh, and it's this little, you know, pillar of light that sits in your house and you talk to it and you go, I need to order more Doritos. And first of all, Amazon Prime is one of these things that just seems so weird to me. Amazon Prime, for those of you who don't know, it's like the subscription that you, you know, you pay like 20 bucks a month or whatever. And you get lots of stuff. You get free shipping, I think if you order all your stuff from them and you can order anything, toilet paper, Doritos, bottled water, you know, computer parts, like anything you can buy from Amazon. And they, and, and, and it's so weird because it means that like, I mean, it's more convenient. I'm sure you just place the order and then there it goes. And Amazon brings you your toilet paper. You don't have to go to the store. Okay. But I'm sorry. I think that that, I don't know. I'm troubled by that. I think stores are good things, right? I think that there's, it's healthy for ordinary people to just go to the store and buy your stuff. And it seems like adding all that extra weight and burden to the infrastructure to, to mail order everything is just weird. And it seems unhealthy for our planet. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand that there's a lot of waste and pollution and, you know, shipping everything to stores. And then we drive to stores in order to buy the stuff. And then, you know, I'm not, I don't know which is more efficient, right? But it just, it bothers me that people are going to buy everything through Amazon. It just seems to be giving Amazon even more power, but whatever. I guess that's a different discussion, but this echo thing, it's just, it's weird because, okay, when Amazon first, this is the article, and where is this from? I think this is from, okay, recode.net, whatever. When Amazon first released the Echo voice-controlled speaker in late 2014, the only shopping feature it included was the ability to ask it to add an item to a shopping list. Early last year, it started allowing users to reorder past purchases by voice. So you say, like, another order of Gatorade, please, and then it'll just say, like, okay, confirmed. It just seems, I don't know, this seems weird to me. Soon thereafter, Alexa added the cap capability to let you order some items you haven't previously ordered, as long as you were cool with Amazon deciding on which brand and variation to purchase for you. This feature worked for me when I tried ordering an HDMI cable, but not for Cheez-Its. Okay. Uh, later in the article, this person from Amazon declined to give any hints on how Amazon plans to close the gap between the ordering capabilities available today and the long-term shopping goals of tomorrow. One far-out idea? Pairing the Echo with a virtual reality headset to show an Echo user an item they ask Alexa about it as they ask Alexa. I guess Alexa is their UI, is their Siri, is their her, uh, all without the need to take out a phone or laptop. Now, I'm sorry, look, whatever you think of Amazon Prime, and I don't know what I think about it, you write in and let me know, Dukescath on Twitter, ESP at FBSP.org. Uh, but it seems weird that it's such a burden to go to your computer or your phone and be like, I want to order this, click, click, boop. That's a burden? You need a robot you can tell, hey, order me more Cheez-Its. I'm sorry. America's number one problem is not it's too hard to get Cheez-Its to shove in our mouths, okay? That's not a problem that computer scientists ought to be working on. I'm going to say it. That's a dogmatic, didactic position, and I'm taking it, okay? That's just not okay. That's not something we need is easier access to Cheez-Its. For God's sake, people, come on. Let's talk about education. Education.
song, by the way, is from Eric Prides. It's called Proper Education. It's a remix of Pink Floyd, of course. And uh, it, it, there's a vi- there's like an official video for that song, and it sucks. It's so stupid. It's a bunch of school kids in school uniforms, like, running around and, like, spray painting stuff. It's the most boring video ever. And it's like, come on, dude. If you're going to do it, do it right. Like, make a new version of that part of the wall where you got the kids in the weird masks. Like, make them into actual robots or something. Like, ah... How can you have such a cool song and such a boring video? Anyway, in education news, uh, this was cool. The NAACP membership calls for a ban on privately managed charter schools. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, Now, before I get to the article, I should say charter schools are like a mixed blessing, okay? They're a mixed curse, depending on who you ask. The AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, is one of the two major teaching unions in the United States. They actually supported charter schools for many years early in their life, in the 70s and 80s and stuff, because charter schools were originally a way for public school districts to try doing different things with structure, with curriculum, with with all sorts of stuff. But here's the thing. Privately run charter schools came along, and they took that basic concept, and they flipped it, and they said, yeah, we're going to do different things, and the number one thing we're going to do differently is we're going to remove control from school boards and local communities, we're going to throw out union contracts, and we're going to give ourselves the right to reject whatever students we don't want to have to deal with. And for those reasons, charter schools, in some cases, have been able to show results that public schools can't because they have a lot more freedom both on the employment end and on the who we allow in the school end and if you don't know the blueberry story go look it up jamie Vollmer blueberry story it's a great example of why public schools can't be run as businesses and so charter schools have been you know and, and don't get me wrong look here's the thing charter school and they tried to start a charter school in, in, in Madison, Wisconsin where I live and I'm glad it was defeated because I don't agree with it but here's the thing a lot of people in the black community were pushing for this charter school because they see the public schools failing black students and they say that's not okay and we want an alternative in the form of a charter school and I understand why people feel that way right I'm mad about what public schools do to, to black kids because they do it in a way that's even more detrimental to the minds of young people than it is for white people but a lot of white kids get crushed in schools too. The point is, um, I don't believe charter schools are the way to go. And the reason is not privately run charter schools because because if, if a privately run charter school does some stuff well for a little while and then they start doing a lot of stuff that's horrible and there are good examples of this happening. Edison was the first national chain of, of private schools um, and it was a disaster and there's a lot of lessons to be learned and if my book about education ever gets published by the man, you can read all about what happened with Edison. Anyway, the point is, you know, then if then the, the, the public has no control over those schools once things start going wrong right? The the benefit of public schools is that if you don't like the way they're run, ostensibly, in theory, in, you know, the idea is that you can then run for the school board, you can put democratic pressure on the school board to get some change made. Now, that doesn't always work the way it's supposed to, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, a company, a corporation has no responsibility to the public, except when its shareholders start making a fuss or when government regulators start putting pressure on. And it's much easier for them to deal with the pressure from shareholders or government regulators than it is for a public institution 
to respond to the pressure from the de demos, the people. So that's why I don't like privately run charter schools. I admit that in some cases they may do things that are good, but in general, in theory, in, in, in practice, I don't like them. Uh, anyway, so the NAACP membership came out opposed to these privately managed charter schools. The resolution won't be official uh, NAACP policy until the organization's national board meets soon and decides whether to approve it. But the message from the majority of its members are clear, and it says in part, here are three points that the statement says. One, charter schools have contributed to the increased segregation rather than diverse integration of our public school system. Two, weak oversight of charter schools puts students and communities at risk of harm, public funds at risk of being wasted, and further erodes local control of public education. Three, researchers have warned that charter school expansions in low-income communities mirror predatory lending practices that led to the subprime mortgage disaster, putting schools and communities impacted by these practices at great risk of loss and harm, end quote. And that's true. I, I can give you examples of that. Again, Edison was a good example of this. They went into one community at one point and they were like, here are all these promises. Somebody who was involved in the negotiations, this was in Texas, I think. And somebody who was involved in the negotiations basically said they were like used car salesmen where they made all these great promises and then they got the money and then they ran a crappy school. And then when they needed to do an IPO for the company, they wanted to be able to say they had never broken a contract. And the company was, the, the community was about to pull out of the Edison contract. And so Edison came in, they flew in some top executives, they made a whole bunch of new promises, they promised all this new funding, and they had their IPO, and they said, you know, we never lost a contract. As soon as the IPO happened, they made all this money on the IPO. As soon as the IPO happened, they sent a letter, they sent an email or something that was like, we're pulling out of this district, goodbye. So it, it was total shady corporate scumbaggery, and, and that's the way these companies work because it's all about money. It's not about actual education for them. And, and profit should not be the motive for teaching kids. And, when, and here's the thing. Some people say, well, the private sector is more efficient, blah, blah, blah. The, 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 the defining factor of the private sector is turning a profit for investors, okay? And, and so when that comes into conflict with teaching kids, as it inevitably does, teaching kids gets lower priority. Okay, because it has to be about profit. That's the that's the nature. That's the whole purpose. The raison d'être. Why are you speaking French? Shut up, Bocephus. Uh, profit is the raison d'être of corporations, right? And so they will never let anything get in the way of that profit. And we've seen that over and over again. That's why corporations constantly trash the environment. There's a really good documentary film called The Corporation. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it because it's all about this stuff. But we're running short on time. We're almost at an hour. Let's talk about some killer robots. Violate robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Uh, f first of all, that song there is from Flight of the Concords. If you've never seen that TV show, you're sleeping. You need to see it. It's awesome. Uh, two guys, Brett and Jermaine, and uh, they're, they're just great. Anyway, uh, so Jermaine was in a movie called What We Do in the Shadows, which is about vampires, and it's sort of a Spinal Tap mockumentary about vampires. Uh, that was written and directed by the guy who also wrote and directed uh, a movie that just came out called 
Journey of the Wilder People or something like that. And it's awesome. It's really, really good. It's got everything. It's got silly jokes. It's got dogs named after rappers. It's got family drama. It's got tragedy. It's got big questions of life and death. It's got car chases. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I can't say enough good stuff about this Wilder People movie. And once again, like with what we do in the shadows, it was a movie the Duchess had heard about. And she's like, we got to see it. We got to see it. We got to see it. And I'm like, yeah, I'll see it. Okay, whatever. And then we saw it. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe how good that was. So check it out. Journey of the Wilder People or whatever it's called. Wilder People is, I know is the word, but I could look it up, but I'm not going to. I should put the trailer on the show notes. I will. Uh, look at the show notes, people. FBESP.org slash synapse. All right. Killer robots. Uh, Tay. If you don't know about Taybot, you need to know about Taybot, okay? Because um, this was a, a Google thing. I don't remember exactly who made this. I want to find out. So let me look in the article. Microsoft Corporation. Okay. Uh, Tay, this is from the Wikipedia page. Tay was an artificial intelligence chatterbot. The fact that that's even a thing is just interesting, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah, by the made by the Microsoft Corporation. Okay, so Tay was released on Twitter on March 23rd, 2016 under the name Tay Tweets and the handle at TayNU. It was presented as the AI with zero chill. And for those old people listening, zero chill is a phrase that the kids use to indicate that I'm like, whatever, I'm not bothered about what I, I don't give a what. Like, just like, it's cool, man. I'm like, zero chill. It's all good. So anyway, uh, Tay started replying to other Twitter users and was also able to caption photos provided to it into a form of internet memes. So robots are making the memes now, people. Every time you see a meme from now on, you should know there's a chance that a robot made that. Uh, the magazine, the online website Ars Technica reported Tay experiencing topic blacklisting, exemplified by interactions with Tay regarding, quote, certain hot topics such as Eric Garner, killed by New York police in 2014, generating safe canned answers. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's how it started. <laughs> Within a day, however, the robot was releasing racist, sexually charged messages and responses to other Twitter users. Examples of Tay's tweets on that day included, quote, Bush did 9-11 and, quote, Hitler would have done a better job than the monkey, Barack Obama, would have got now. Donald Trump is the only hope we've got, end quote. As well as, quote, F my robot pusses daddy, I'm such a naughty robot, end quote. This is a Microsoft chatterbot that's saying these things online, okay? It also contained a photo of Hitler with swag alert and, quote, swagger before the internet was even a thing. And Taybot was taken offline like two days later, 18 hours after, 16 hours after its launch. My eyes are bad. I thought that was 18. So it came and went within 16 hours. And there was a profile picture of this robot. It was basically a picture of like a teenage girl with like, I don't even know, like some graphics effects done to it. Um, I'd like to know who that teenage girl is in the photo because I'll bet she's interested to know. It's probably some stock photo of some teenage girl and then like process it. And then she becomes the face of this racist robot uh, talking about, Hitler a swag alert. I'm <laughs> just like, and and you know what? Look, this is an AI computing problem, right? They they the way these computers are programmed, they 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 say go out there into the world, find out what the cool kids are saying, zero chill, and then you say that. Okay, that's the idea. 
But what happens when people are horrible online, as they always are? Not everybody, but so many people online are just atrocious. Why do you want a robot to mirror that atrocity? You shouldn't. Robots should be better than that. But this proves we have a long way to go before they are. And this proves that we shouldn't be giving the robots bombs or guns or anything like that. Until they know not to celebrate Hitler, robots shouldn't have weapons. Okay? This is a this is a warning alert. Don't give the robots weapons until they know that Hitler wasn't cool. Alright? That's my proclamation I am making I'm throwing I'm making a line over this line you do not cross Big Lebowski blammo uh yeah I'm making a stand here okay I'm saying it I'm 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 putting my position out there we do not give robots guns or bombs we stop the drone program until robots can prove that they understand that Hitler wasn't cool until you can explain why Hitler wasn't cool you don't get to have a gun robots you hear me Terminator uh, and also no teenage sex talk. That would be good too. And then you can have guns when you have any teenage sex talk. Oh God, how sick is that? Uh, in 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 other news of drugs, I guess that wasn't really about drugs. But anyway, uh, mayor of rich DC suburb charged in meth for sex scheme. And uh, attention, new listeners, this isn't just about actual robots. This is also about the miscellaneous file where all the other interesting stuff happens. Uh, so. <laughs> The mayor of Fairfax, Virginia, a wealthy Washington suburb, was arrested on charges of distributing methamphetamines as part of an alleged meth-for-sex scheme, Fairfax County Police said Friday. Mayor Richard Scott Silverthorne, 50, who is also a substitute teacher for Fairfax County Public Schools, was arrested Thursday after he allegedly provided meth to undercover officers who met him at a local hotel, police said. Skip. Silverthorne's bio on the official Fairfax City website states he is, quote, a champion for quality of life issues. <laughs> it's the irony, as Bill Hicks once said. It's just real simple irony, but it's a hoot. You can laugh at it. It's a hoot. In January, Silverthorne told, this is the sad part, Silverthorne told the Washington Post that, quote, it's been a terrible year for me, referring to financial and medical issues, the newspaper reports. The Post says Silverthorne was laid off in June from his job as a director of recruitment with the National Association of Manufacturers and that a bank foreclosed on his house. So I think this is an interesting example of how someone can, you know, in a sort of real life breaking bad example, you know, you, you hit a hard patch, you lose your house, you lose everything, you lose your job. What do you do? Well, you're desperate, as Dead Prez once said. What you going to do when the lights get cut off, when the rent due, uh, drop them wraps or cock them gats, right? People do what they have to do to pay the bills. And so this guy was trading meth for sex, apparently. I guess that's not really paying the bills. That's paying your sex bills with meth. Whatever. Anyway, the point is, I think it's a tragedy, but it's also ironic and weird and bizarre. And, oh, you know, it reminds me of Marion Barry, who was the mayor of D.C., who got arrested for uh, soliciting sex with a prostitute while smoking crack uh, in the 80s, 90s. I don't remember when Marion Barry hit his stride. Anyway, uh, in other news of mayors doing crazy things, Lithuanian mayor crushes parked cars with a tank. There's video of this. You've got to see it. In an effort to dissuade motorists from parking cars in cycle lanes, so there's the alert for the Duchess. This is about bicycling. He's trying to make the city safe for bicyclists. Uh, the mayor of Vilnius has taken to crushing illegally parked cars with a tank, sparking two viral videos. The stunt, which took place in, took place in Lithuania's capital, Vilnius, 
Vilnius involved the mayor Arturis Zuokas driving an armored personnel carrier. That's not technically a tank, I know. Uh, over a Mercedes illegally parked in a cycle lane. And it's great because the video shows the guy coming out. And the mayor's like, here's your keys. Don't park in a bike lane anymore. And the guy's like, what happened to my car? It's all crushed and messed up. you got to see the video. It's awesome. And finally, uh, in this part of the show, beautiful news. Sealed with a kiss, girlfriend proposes to Brazilian player after rugby final. This is awesome. In the Olympics, uh, the world was watching and let out a collective aww when Brazilian rugby player Isadora Cerullo and her girlfriend got engaged in public at the Deodoro Stadium in Rio. As the crowd dispersed after the Australian women's rugby sevens team won a gold medal against New Zealand on Tuesday, Marjorie Enya, 28, a volunteer stadium worker, walked Walked onto the pitch with TV cameras and iPhones recording the moment. But there's I can't find video of this. That's what's crazy. There were TV cameras and iPhones recording it, but all I can find are still photos. Whatever. Uh, Enya asked Cerullo to marry her. Uh, happily, Cerullo, 25, said yes, and the pair kissed and hugged while the crowd cheered and millions watched online. Oh, isn't that sweet? And then uh, they sailed away on the Orinoco flow. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> That's an Enya joke. I know people are just rolling in their aisles, falling out of their chairs with the laughing. Uh, one, Let's two, talk hip hop. Thanks to the Duchess once again for... Uh, oh, and she's the one who told me that Vilnius, of course, is a sister city of Madison. She reminded me of that. So, duh. Uh, maybe someday I can meet this mayor guy if he ever comes to Madison. I can be like, yeah, let's ride over some uh, Mercedes in the bike lanes in Madison. That'd be cool. But the Duchess also sent me an article from the New York Times Magazine headlined, Chuck D Thinks Rage is Good for America. And this is a cool little interview with Chuck D. He's an awesome guy, front man for Public Enemy. If you don't know, you're sleeping. Uh, Public Enemy is like the greatest rap group of all time. Probably, I mean, you know, tied up there with Wu-Tang and Run DMC. Anyway, um, yeah, so at one point he says, I'm a culturalist. Culture brings human beings together through our similarities. Governments and culture are diametrically opposed. Beware of a government that tells you they give you culture. The government has control over the narrative of stereotypes of people of color, and it pushes culture in that direction as well. So that's a cool interview. You should read the whole thing. Uh, and then this week's uh, hip-hop music comes to us from a really cool rapper. Uh, I don't remember where she's actually from. Let me find out through the power of Google. Okay, so she's French Chilean. So there you go. How about that? Um, yeah. And she's been ex praised for exploring sensitive matters devoid of violence. Uh, yeah. She's the daughter of Chilean parents living in political exile in France during Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship in Chile. How cool is that? Anyway, she did a song with a Palestinian rapper named, uh, I can never remember her name, Shadia Mansour. And they did a song called Somos Sur. And it's freaking awesome. So let me play you a clip of this.
I mean, how wicked is that? We got a woman speaking, rapping in Spanish, and then we have a woman rapping in Arabic, and they're talking about the importance of resistance. Uh, the chorus says, all the silenced, uh, todos los... I don't remember. I have the Spanish. And, todos los callados. And I'm going to say it wrong. But todos. Todos los omitidos. And that means all the neglected and then all the invisible. Todos los invisibles. Uh, todos. And and they're rapping together about the need to fight against injustice and, and, and uh, resistance, not only in Chile, but around the world. Uh, she told the Rolling Stone, global resistance movements, whether in Latin America, Africa, or Middle East, are fighting against the same patterns of violence that have repeated themselves throughout history, which means many of these groups also share a same set of demands. We are asking for a free Palestine, just like we're asking for an independent Walmapu in Chile without police control. And I just love the anthems of, of resistance that we find in hip-hop. This is what hip-hop is. And if you don't know, you need to know. Let's have a quote of the Friends, week. Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end of this near. But don't Friends. panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Okay, this week's quote is actually going to be from ta Coates because his book, Between the World and Me, is just incredible you got to read it it's so important and um yeah he's talking about american history at this point page 104 and he talks about the the fact that america built its wealth and its identity on the blood and the bodies of black people and so here's an excerpt from that part it had to be blood it had to be nails driven through tongue and ears pruned away quote some disobedience wrote a southern mistress much idleness sullenness slovenliness used the rod it had to be the thrashing of kitchen hands for the crime of churning butter at a leisurely clip. It had to be some woman, quote, cheered with 30 lashes a Saturday last and as many more a Tuesday again, end quote. It could only be the employment of carriage whips, tongs, iron pokers, hand saws, stones, paperweights, or whatever might be handy to break the black body, the black family, the black community, the black nation. The bodies were pulverized into stock and marked with insurance. And the bodies were an aspiration, lucrative as Indian land, a veranda, a beautiful wife, or a summer home in the mountains. For the men who needed to believe themselves white, the bodies were the key to a social club, and the right to break the bodies was the mark of civilization. Quote, the two great divisions of society are not the rich and poor, but white and black, said the great Southern Carolina, South Carolina Senator John C. Calhoun. And all the former, the poor as well as the rich, belong to the upper class and are respected and treated as equals because they're white, end quote. And there it is. The right to break the black body is the meaning of their sacred equality. And that right has always given them meaning, always meant that there was someone down in the valley because a mountain is not a mountain if there is nothing below. This book, if nothing else, is a challenge to white people. Do you believe yourself to be white in the way he's describing here? Do you believe that your existence as a person depends on the continued uh, degradation, violence, blood, suffering, and death and misery of black people? Because if you do believe that, again, you need to come out and say that. 
But if you don't believe that, then you need to fight against it. You need to join us as we resist the, the continued drive of white supremacy to say that black lives and black bodies mean nothing. Because that's what black people are hearing. That's the message black people are receiving today. And if you don't believe that that's the message they ought to be receiving, then you need to recognize why they feel that way and fight against it. You need to join the movement for black lives mattering and endorse the platform of the movement for black lives and stand up with me as we fight against white supremacy in all of its guises and all of its formats because it's going strong and we have to fight against it. So I hope you're with me as we uh, take part of that fight. That's it, people. We're done. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbsp.org slash synapse. And there you can find my interview with Sarah Schulman. You can find the uh, memorial piece that I wrote to Antonio Terubiartes. May he rest in peace. Uh, I miss him. I love him. And big love for his family as well. Um, my website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is at fbesp.org. And you can find links there to music I've made and fiction I've written in multimedia and my two books and lots of other stuff. Off. shout outs this week to you for listening thank you very much everybody who's just subscribed to the feed thank you for being part of this uh, everybody who gets in touch um, at Duke Scath on Twitter ESP at FBESP.org if you want to email in big thanks to the Duchess and Phil Olson I said uh, Chinny and Stu from the Veteran Gamers um, all the English department at the high school where I teach and uh, yeah everybody who gives me love on Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere everyone who's retweeted my stuff thank you I should actually give a special shout out to the people who retweeted um, the Sarah Schulman thing and when I put the feed back on uh, Twitter they retweeted that so I need to give them thanks because I really appreciate that kind of personal help uh, getting this back out Rose Pete uh, Rose Pote sorry uh, like the uh, Twitter thing um, W. Kamal Bell like the thing that I sent him Phil Olson retweeted me thank you Phil you're big supporter. I love you, dude. Uh, Chris Williams also uh, retweeted the thing about the feed for the podcast being back online. Uh, Stu Leck retweeted um, uh, the Sarah Schulman interview. And uh, yeah, Cal Powell has been retweeting me and Jason Johnson retweeted me for the Sarah Schulman interview. So thank you everybody for the love and support. I really appreciate that. Um, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing. So I apologize if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out. What do you want me to say? I, even though I'm on summer break, I'm a busy guy. Deal hey, with listen, it. Listen, I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Please get in touch with feedback or questions, ESP at FBSP.org or tweet me at at Duke Scath. I'm I'm going to stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Can you hear the fan in the background? I got the fan going because Wisconsin weather doesn't know what it's... Make up your mind, Wisconsin weather. You're crazy.